Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann, dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann on today's podcast, Embarrassment. We've all been there in the dead of night, lying awake, replaying that one moment over and over again in our minds. The daily mistakes we make, both large and small, are part of what makes us human and yet are often impossible to forgive ourselves for. In his new book, Embarrassment, Tom Newkirk writes, we perform for ourselves, often the harshest of audiences. But how does embarrassment affect our professional lives as teachers? And how does it affect students? Tom would argue that it is the true enemy of learning, keeping teachers and students alike silent, hesitant, and afraid. So how do we get past our anxiety, our panic and defensiveness, and become more generous to ourselves? How do we teach our students to take the risk of asking for help or just to raise their hand in the classroom? I recently sat down with Tom near his home in Durham, New Hampshire. We started at the beginning of the book, where Tom very openly says... I'll go first, and proceeds to share an early memory from the first grade. I'll let Tom take it from here. Well, I want to start with I'll go first. And I almost imagined, you know, like there's some rope swing or something, you know, and (laughs) I'm going to go off, but then you're going to go off next. Yeah. So the idea is that I'll tell a story, and I hope it calls up a story for you. And the story I tell is uh, I'm in first grade, and I'm in rhythm band, which, you know, you had cymbals, you had drums, and you had sticks. And the idea was you're supposed to create these rhythms and that's supposed to make you love music, you know, which I don't, still don't get. But, uh, and so, so uh, you know, I'm kind of a drifty kid and they asked if somebody would like to lead the rhythm band. And I raised my hand and I was probably thinking, does somebody want to go to the bathroom? You know, I, was, I probably wasn't even paying attention to the question. But suddenly I have my hand raised and I find myself walking to the front of this rhythm band, which is a combined first grades, which pretty much everybody I knew. And they hand me the baton, and I didn't know what to do. And so I point to the sticks, and they go clack, 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 clack. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to change the rhythm. I mean, there was no scaffolding you know, going on. You know, just like be up there. And so I'm pointing to the sticks, and just looking around, and I'm pointing to the sticks. And finally, mercifully, the teacher says, well, thank you, Tommy, and lets me go to my seat. But I think that that minute and a half that I'm up there just feeling totally mortified, feeling I don't know what to do, I still feel that. Yeah. And I think we all have moments when we remember those episodes. And, and, and so that's how I wanted to start out. And I think that embarrassment and shame and the emotions I'm writing about are something we all share, you know, whether we're teachers or not, whatever we teach. And so I, I hope that it's kind of this big inclusive yeah. club we're all part of, this club of embarrassment. You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna channel my inner Don Murray, and you 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 basically just said it. But when you really boil it down, what is this book about? This book is about the emotions of shame, failure, frustration, disappointment uh, that we all feel as teachers, and all feel as learners, uh, and we often feel those in silence. We often feel those as if we're the only one feeling them. 
And I wanted to kind of create a discussion about that. I talk about the emotional underlife, and it's kind of like this hidden thing that's hard and that's sometimes painful that we have to find a way of dealing with because it's, it's part of our human nature. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you can't deal with it, if you can't deal with failure, if, if you're haunted by it, if it comes back, if you hold it to yourself, I think that's, that's destructive. And it creates a kind of, a, I think, unhappiness. And, yeah. and, and I felt that, and, I've, and I, failed to get, I failed to deal with it at times, and I, I talk about that in the book. And, and I kind of wanted to bring that out in the open, this thing that it's, that's, that's hidden. But to me, it's such a part of, of my teaching life mm-hmm. and some, something I really have to deal with. You, you write extensively about how there's, sort of, there's, there's the embarrassment and the shame that we feel as students, as learners, and then there's what we feel as educators. Yeah. And you really you, you make a point about how it interferes with our learning. Can you explain more about how it interferes with our learning? Well, I think it, it keeps us from trying things. You know, that we anticipate, um, if I try this and it doesn't work, it's going to be this major problem, which it often isn't. You know, there's a, a term that I came across. I think it's either catastrophization or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, that if I do this and it doesn't work, it's going to be a catastrophe. Yeah. It's going to be the most awful thing, so you, you hold back. Yeah. And in reality, you know, uh, J- William James says, our errors are not such solemn things, mm-hmm. and they're not. And so I think, I think it can hold us back from, from trying things. And then I think it can kind of like a, can haunt us if we can't get beyond it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was interested in is like talking to great athletes. I talked to some great athletes, and one chapter is really about that. And I was really interested in how they get beyond failure mm-hmm. and, and just the, the team that they have around them to say, okay, move on, move on. So how we, you know, so that I think when we hold on to these embarrassing moments, and maybe we're conditioned to hold on, not to not to forget them. Maybe mm-hmm. that's part of our biology. Mm-hmm. But I think there's capacity to move on and to focus on the next thing. And I think that's part of the way which we kind of deal with embarrassment. If we can't deal with it, I think, I think we, we are, are limited by it. We're frustrated by it. We're, it makes us cautious. Uh, so I think that to find ways of dealing with it, I think, are really important. Let's talk a little bit more about the coaches and the athletes as you talk to. You yeah. talked to two Olympic athletes yeah. and a few coaches. Yeah. And it, you really you took a lot away from that. I mean, really, I the, love that, yeah. the coaches especially, well, both, both the athletes and the coaches had two different perspectives. Talk a little bit about what you took away from those conversations. One of the things is like uh, some coaches tend to focus on the negative, and the one, the one Tim Churchill I talked to says, you know, to focus on the positive, say, mm-hmm. okay, uh, look, you did that. What did it feel like to do that? Keep trying to do that instead of, well, okay, you really screwed up here. And he says that sometimes coaches lean towards the negative. And that sounds perfectly consistent with what I've learned from Don Murray about writing. You know, yeah. okay, you, know, you wrote this great paragraph. You wrote this great description. Do more of that. <laughs> so that, that felt right. And I thought it was really interesting how athletes are conditioned to move on. You know, if, if, you, if you let in a goal mm-hmm. and you're still thinking about that, letting in that goal, you're going to let in the next goal because you're not paying attention to what's happening in front mm-hmm. of you. And so I really thought that... Uh, particularly when I talked to this one swimmer, she said, you really got to clear your mind of what's happened in the past. And she said, it's like going to church. You just, you just, you just focus on what's happening in that moment. And she even talked about, um, she's a coach at Stanford, coached the Stanford women's swim team, which is one of the great swim team, college yeah. swim teams in the, in, the, in the country. And one, one of the things she did was she said, okay, I would like you to write down 
something that's on your mind, something that's troubling you, concerning you, and just write it down. And so she, she did a lot of journaling and said, okay, I could take that piece of paper and crumple it up. And as, she, as they walked into practice, they dropped the piece of paper in the wastebasket. Clear your mind, go yeah. on, reset. And I really think athletes have to do that. And I think we have a lot we can learn from them. You talk a lot about the language that we use as educators and how important that is and the questions that we ask and the feedback that we give. Mm -hmm. How crucial is it that we be mindful of the words we're using, the language we're using, and the feedback that we're giving to students? I think it's absolutely crucial. Uh, I quote Peter Johnston in the book, in this, his book Choice Words is, I think, the Bible as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Um, but I, and I think one of the things that we have to do when we, when we talk with kids is to give them time. Mm -hmm. One of the points I make is I think good teaching, you know, is never rushed. Mm -hmm. You can maybe not make a lot of generalizations about good teaching, but I'd say that's one. The good teaching never looks rushed. And I think that a lot of the, 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 the frustration, the shame, the sense of failure that we feel, the sense of not being able to be articulate, not being able to be smart, is because we're not given enough time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my parents were great listeners. They, they created space, and people would come into our house and tell these stories. And the one thing I never realized was they were helping create those stories mm -hmm. because they were listeners. So I grew up, I grew up in a family of listeners. And, mm -hmm. and I think at my best, I create space and students talk, and then suddenly they say things that they could include in their writing that they mm -hmm. hadn't thought about before. And so I think whether it's teaching English or teach, teaching reading or whatever, response, teaching math, to create space so people can try things and, and to feel a kind of, a kind of calm. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think often we feel tense and because we feel rushed or we feel you know, maybe an expectation of judgment, but to, to feel a sense of calm that I have, I have this space in front of me. Mm -hmm. that I can work this out, whether it's an algebra problem or a problem, uh, in, you know, not understanding something and reading, but I can kind of figure it out. That, so for me, finding that sense of calm, and if I can, creating that sense of calm and space for students is really important. I want to talk a little bit more about math. Okay. Um, and actually, a, a similarity that I picked up Maybe it was intentional in the writing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you have a chapter devoted to math and the shame and embarrassment that we feel around math, yeah. where we often will say, I'm not a math person. Yeah. And you really take us through some, some math problems. You take us through some algebra. And then immediately next to that chapter, you come out of that chapter, you go right into a writing, a chapter on writing about the embarrassment we feel within our own writing and how we need to sort of grow out of that and sort of, I, I'm scared to be a writer. I'm scared to show my writing in public. Yeah. And it really seems to me that there is a correlation there between the feeling of not being a math person and, oh, I'm not a writer, but I am a writer, and that, that nervousness. How can we change that narrative, and how can we approach that mindset that we have for both of those? Well, I think, I think in, like, the math chapter is really interesting, right, because it's, I'm not, not a math educator. It's, you know, it's like with those commercials, you know, I'm not a math educator, but I did sleep at the Holiday Inn Express the night before, you know. Uh, you know, the idea of having right answers in, in math, you know, and you have these tests that have right answers. Where, uh, there's, uh, there's like a book called Which One Doesn't Belong, where you have multiple shapes, and then you have to make arguments which one is different. And the, and the thing is, all, as long as you can justify your answers, they could all, they could all work. Uh, so I think to take away the shame of being wrong, because I mean, I would always, in math, I would always like 
do do part of the problem and then make some mistake and then get the answer wrong and I was wrong you know <laughs> in the sense of being wrong and I think there might be a parallel in writing that people feel that okay I'm going to be criticized mm-hmm. you know I'm exposing myself and you have classes where kid you know people are always apologizing you know oh, this is not really good you know? and, and I'm, I've seen classes where you had to put a, a quarter or something in a jar whenever you did that which is probably a good uh, uh, and where does that come from yeah where does that come from? And I think, I think if students and writers experience people who do look for the, what's going well, that Catherine Bummer called the hidden gems or the not hidden gems. Uh, and I think as a writing teacher, I'm looking for something to like. Mm. And I'm going to find it. And I'm going to tell you. Yeah. And then we're going to work from there. And there may be some things that don't work for me, but I'm, I'm, my antenna are out for something that's working, a sentence, a verb, you know, and I'm going to tell it to you, and I'm, I might read what I've written and just say, you know, just marvel at it with you, and then we can go on. But I think if you've had that experience, and I did, you know, with my father, with my, Don Murray, with teachers, I think you internalize that voice, and at the, at the end of the book I talk, say this is about self-generosity. It's about creating a voice or, or internalizing a voice that, that allows you to see what's going well. And I think often we don't, certainly in writing and math, we have not heard that voice. And even, even in that last chapter on where you really, you're helping us find that permission for that generosity that we're trying to give to ourselves, you caution us. Yeah. You, you, you write to, the, to a certain layer, and I want you to sort of talk a little bit more about this, how we have to be careful with how much of that generosity that we give. Yeah. I think I said, don't, it's not being complacent. It's not just saying, oh, I'm fine. Everything's yeah. fine. You know, I don't have to worry. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a voice that challenges you as well. And say, okay, can you do better on this? You know, can you, you know, let's take, 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 an, take another stab at this. Put it away. Take another look at it. So it, it prods you. You know, I mean, you know, it's, so I, I talk about generosity. That doesn't mean just being nice to yourself. Yeah. But it means kind of pushing yourself but also in a way that often builds on what's, what's going well. So it's not, it's not a punishing voice. Uh, it's, it's uh, okay, what else, what more could you write on this? Or, uh, okay, um, you say this, but who would disagree with you on this? Why don't you go down that avenue around? You know, so it's, it's gener- generosity, but it's also generative. It, pu- it pushes you, it prods you, it, it, but, but in, a, in a kind of a, I think, creative way instead of a critical way. One thing that you talk about is students tend to get embarrassed asking for help. And you write about the risk-benefit equation. And, and I, there's, there's sort of two things there, but I want to really start with how can we shift the risk-benefit equation to create more, t- more participation in class? The, the traditional way is I ask a question, everybody raises their hand, and then teacher calls on that person, that person responds, and then the teacher says, oh, good answer, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right, or something like that. And then they go on to the next question. I think that's not a productive way for holding discussions. I think you have to find other ways to help students get into the conversation. And I think particularly with students who are shy, uh, introverted, or uh, not to equate these, but maybe if formulating answers in English is hard for you because English is a second language. You have to find ways of maybe preparing what you're going to say. And I make the you know, comparison when I went to France, I'd go into a store. If I could prepare what I was going to say to the shopkeeper, I could sound 
pretty good, you know? And every now and then they'd talk to him back like I really could go, which is a mistake, because <laughs> I couldn't. But if I could prepare, it, it helped. And so I think, uh, can you find ways of having students enter in where they might write something first and then share it, where they might talk to somebody first and then share it? And I love to do things like if everybody's written in class, I'll just like to go around and have everybody say in a sentence or two what they've written. And I might hear all the voices in the class. And I love the experience of hearing everybody's voice in a class, even if it's just for two or three sentences. But it's kind of a safe, kind of a safe way in. And I think to go back to what I said, when I'm talking one-on-one -on -one with a student, to do as much as I can to, to say, I'm not in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Take your time. Yeah. Say, you know, say some more about what you've just said. I'm listening. You know, if I can convey that, I think I create a safe and inviting space for them to talk. If I indicate to them that I'm rushed, mm -hmm. you know, or that I, I really, or, or I'm so tired that I'm just talking all the time and not giving you, then, then I'm not doing my job. So, so I think there's a number of strategies we can, we can do to, uh, and I think again, the right and wrong, you know, you say something and I tell you if what you said is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that's usually not productive. Yeah. You even write, you, just to kind of go off of that, you even write that in your teacher evaluations, your students used to say you were very calm in class. Yeah. You were a very calm teacher. Yeah. But you, you write that there's a lot behind that, that you, in your early days as teaching, you would sort of have this anxiety before you walked into the classroom about what you were going to do, and yet it comes off as calm. I don't know how that happens, unless it just in my early days, I think right up to the last class, I'd be pacing the floor before the class that I think that I always, I always found that there's an element of anxiety in teaching. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that I wanted to, that I wanted to do in this book is to show that, uh, to show myself as a teacher who is not some kind of ideal. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that we can get trapped into this notion of there's these super teachers out mm -hmm. there and they write books on teaching and everything looks great. Yeah. And the students write not only better than your students, they write better than you do. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, and things just seem to click into place. And one of the things I want to, really one of the, I think, the, the motives for writing the book is saying, that's not my reality. Mm -hmm. That's not my emotional reality. My emotional reality, my, my successes are intermittent mm -hmm. and I, I frequently feel frustrated. Sometimes I feel students don't respond to the, you know, invitations I create. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I've always had trouble managing time in a class, <laughs> you know, like I'm always done. I always have too much or too little. And so it's always like, you know, the end of the class. I've, you know, I mean, my emotional reality is up and down and, you know, things. And so I wanted to kind of like write about that because I think you can measure yourself up against a super teacher and you're always going to fall short, and, you're all, and no matter what, how well you're doing, you're always going to feel like it's not good enough. It really is important to break that silence, and you address that pretty early on in the book. You, you say right almost off the bat in the first page, we've got to break this silence. Yeah. Why is that so important? I mean, and, and why does the silence exist? I think the silence exists because we want to present ourselves as competent. Mm -hmm. you know? And okay, I tell the story in the book about like, you know, this was like not just mid-career. I mean, I'd already written a lot. I was a full professor. And I went through a stage, probably two or three years, when I was not a good teacher. Mm -hmm. I might have been an adequate teacher. I wasn't a total failure. But, you know, and there were signs that I wasn't looking forward to, to, to going into the classroom, that the classes didn't quite gel, and I was letting that happen. Uh, and, and at some level, I knew that, but I didn't get help. 
I didn't name it. I didn't get help. And the help would have been available. Yeah. And I let that go on. And I think that, I think that there's a sense of we, we want to appear competent. And if I go and say to, to a colleague and say, look, could you just come in and see, the class seems a little flat, you know, these, my class seems a little flat. Could you just come in and just see if there are things that you could suggest I might try? Mm. I never did that. I never did that. And there would have been people who I could have done that with. And, and I regret that. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if I could go back, I would have, and, 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 I, and if, if writing this book just encourages a few teachers who may be struggling to say, could you come in and take a look at that? Or could I go take a look at your class and just see how you, you know, I have trouble starting a class. How do you get your classes going? You know, my students seem dead at the beginning of class. If you just kind of have that exchange, I think we could become better and happier teachers because we all have those moments, I think. Nobody has success in every class. Everybody, you know, I think we all need help. Yeah. We all need help at some point. And there should be no stigma in getting it. And the more a school can be a culture where you can, you can get that help and not have it be judgmental, I think that we're all going to be happier. Otherwise, we just kind of suffer in silence, which is what I did and what I regret. You even relate that back to the students very clearly. You, mm -hmm. you, you show that some students would rather avoid a label or would avoid the uh, social stigma with asking for help than yeah. getting the help. Yeah. They talk a little bit about you know what a student is sort of thinking where they would rather not get help than, yeah. than go through that. Well, I start that chapter on, because they talk about office hours at the university and students not coming in for office hours and why they didn't. And I started to make a list and the list gets really long. I mean, obviously to get help, you have to, you know, be prepared to ask for help two or three days or so before the assignments do. Well, okay, that's, that's a limitation. I think there's a sense that if I ask for help, people will think I'm not a good student, you know, so I'd rather just, you know, tough it out and not ask for help. I think you have to know how to ask for help. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to think that you're entitled to help, mm -hmm. that this is, this is something that you should be taking advantage of. And paradoxically, I think the more... Uh, and since privileged you are as a student, you know, in terms of your growing up, mm -hmm. the more likely you are to think of help as an entitlement, and that's something that's, you know, kind of a risky thing to, to do. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of barriers to getting help. I think if you make getting help or, you know, routine, you know, it's like, you know, I want you to come in for a conference every two weeks, mm -hmm. then I think that makes it easier to get help. But I think when you have to initiate particularly at a college, you know, cross that threshold to my office to see Professor Newkirk with maybe a picture of some books on his wall and, you know, not to intimidate, but I mean, it's intimidating maybe yeah. for, uh, and I think also the, how to ask for help. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we think of, you know, asking for help as just some automatic thing, but, but I think there's a, there's a kind of a convention for asking for help. How do you ask for help? And I think if, if somebody comes in and says, I'm just lost, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a really good opening move to mm -hmm. ask for help. You should have something, you should have made an attempt and tried at something and then had a more specific question. Just as like somebody comes into a doctor and say, hey, I just don't feel good. <laughs> you know, you know that, the doctor would have to work through a bunch of steps to get to a point where he could be helpful. So there's, I think there's conventions for asking for help. You write about, you talk to a few doctors for the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you write about how important the questions are that get asked, yeah. but also you bring this back to the classroom with uh, helping the student name the problem. Yeah. How, so how can we be better at helping others get help? Yeah. Well, I think maybe we can model 
ways in which to ask for help. And, and I think there's certain terms like, are you having trouble with your lead? Are you having trouble with developing your, your topic? You know, there's, there's terms that, that I think students might need to know to be able to ask for help. You know, is, is there a part that's giving you trouble? You know, so you're not just saying, I just, I'm just having trouble. You know, I'm having trouble finding resources. I'm having trouble, you know, justifying this argument. I'm having trouble imagining who would argue against me. So I think that there'd be kinds of ways of teaching students to say to, to what, kinds of, what kinds of help you need. Mm -hmm. And there's a language we can teach students about what kinds of help they need. And I think, and we could probably model the kinds of language that students might use to get help. Otherwise, it's kind of like, I just, you know, just help me out, which doesn't take you too far. I really felt the portion on empathy was really important. Sometimes we talk about empathy as either you have it or you don't have it. Either you're an empathetic person or you're not. So I think we really have to work to, to become empathetic, to have a growth mindset. It's, it's something we have to keep working on to be empathetic because by our nature, I think, you know, when somebody, you know, violates a rule, like the sound in a library or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, our first instinct is not always to be tolerant. I think we can develop it, but it's not an automatic thing, I don't think. If this book works, it's going to work because it's going to invite readers to imagine their own situations and their own frustrations, their own difficulties, and, and to open up a kind of a space for us to talk about when things don't go well, or when, or, or when we become too hard on ourselves. You know, it makes me sad to think that teachers working so hard, uh, and we have the culture, you know, the outside culture and media always saying how schools are failing and this and that, and then, you know, then you have models of excellence that are almost perfect and unattainable. And so we, we're working hard and feeling that we're just falling short. And you'd like to think, you'd like to have a sense of we can look at things that are going well. We can be kind to ourselves. Because I think that, you know, maybe we can persevere being harsh on ourselves, but that's not a good way to go, you know? So how do you, how do you internalize voices for yourself, and how do you become a voice that your students internalize that says, okay, we can do this. You can, you know, you can do this. We can take our time. We can try, we can try a couple things here. We've done this before. We've been in this situation before. We can make it. You know, how do we create that kind of voice in our head? And like I say, I've been lucky because I've had people who've helped me there. Um, and if, if this book can kind of encourage people to, to, to kind of internalize or to think about that voice that's not just saying, oh, this is terrible, you know, you're not a good writer, you're not a good math student, you've never been a good math student, you know, to get some counter other voices going. So if this book can just make a, just a nudge in that direction, it's, it's going to accomplish what I want. My thanks to Tom for his time today, talking about his new book, Embarrassment and the Emotional Underlife of Learning. You can also read Tom's first chapter from Embarrassment on Heinemann.com right now. You can also find a special interview Tom conducted with himself and why he decided to take on Embarrassment. You can find that on Heinemann.com slash blog. If you're on Twitter, I invite you to follow Tom at Tom underscore Newkirk, where you can connect with him further about embarrassment. Don't forget to subscribe for more podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Plus, you can get a daily teacher tip right on your phone directly from Heinemann authors by downloading the Heinemann Teacher Tip app. 
All this and more on Heinemann.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.